Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with James Hollis. James Hollis is a Jungian psychoanalyst and the author of many books, including his latest, A Life of Meaning, which is the primary subject of our conversation. During our conversation, Jim talks about some of the major themes in his work and his book, The Shadow, The Numinous, Psychopathology, Lethargy, and Fear. Jim is one of my favorite writers and thinkers, and I reference him as much as anyone. This conversation is full of some of my favorite ideas and quotes, including this one from his new book, quote, probably the wisest thing ever said about the shadow was uttered by the Roman African playwright Terence, who a little over 2000 years ago said, nothing human is alien to me. And the second from the writings of Carl Jung, quote, the spirit of evil is negation of the life force by fear. Only boldness can deliver us from fear. If the risk is not taken, the meaning of life is violated. I hope you enjoy this conversation with James Hollis. Jim Hollis, it is wonderful to see you again. Thank you so much. It's an honor to uh, get some of your time. Welcome back to the show. It's good to see you, man. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to be here, and, and thank you for inviting me again. My pleasure. I thought I would start with a quote from your book, which is going to be the primary subject of today's conversation. And you begin the book by saying, quote, the book is based on asking questions that really matter in our lives because I believe large questions get us a larger life, a life that takes us to places that engage the mind, spirit, and soul. And I thought I would start by setting the table with that quote and asking you in a little bit more detail, where does this book come from? I know you're up to close to 20 at this point. What's the background story on this specific book? Well, that book is a collection of essays. And by the way, there is another book that I was just proofreading. <laughs> it is number 20. So it's like, who's counting, right? <laughs> As my daughter said, uh, haven't you run out of things to say yet? And I, I kept getting close to it. You know, I'm getting close to it. But that specific quote, there, I, I think when I was young, as I think we all were, we assumed that there were probably fixed answers to life's biggest questions. And if we can read the right book, take the right class, or find the right guru or, or whomever, um, they would tell us what the secrets were, you see. Well, once you grow up, you realize there are a bunch of people running around who have no clue as to what's going on. Half of them are politicians, of course. And, and uh, you know, the unexamined life plays out daily in marriages, in parenting, and, um, you know, civic duties and so forth. So large questions mean that you're taking on something that's probably never going to be solved, but you grow by doing it. Mm. Small questions in the long run lead you to a small life in the sense in which it's it's about safety or ratifying the belief systems that you already have, rather than engaging the otherness of life, which is the process through which we all grow. Um, just to add one piece to that, in in the book, The Eden Project, which is about the psychodynamics of relationship, I, I said, ultimately, 
while there's a part of us that's looking for someone who's going to take care of us and fix us and, and you know, spare us from having to grow up and deal with it ourselves, um, you know, what, the, what relationship actually offers us ultimately is their otherness. The otherness of the other is something that one needs to take in and, and include within yourself, and you grow larger that way. So the same is true with the questions that are large in life. What what is it that pushes you to discovery? What is it that pushes you to uh, new new understandings of self and world? And 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 frankly, I think it leads to a more interesting um, life. Ultimately, I mean, what if there were a book that had all the answers you ever wanted? Read it, memorize it, and then what are you going to do? Right? What are you going to do? It's kind of like there was a elderly lady who was in my neighborhood who, when I was a child, I was probably five or six. And she would say sometimes, she would totter by, she'd say, come walk with me. And I would walk with her all the time. And she'd say, you know, Jimmy, uh, soon I'm going to those golden streets in in heaven, you know, and I'm going to be walking those golden streets. And then, of course, she passed away. And I remember thinking of, at the time, (laughs) All right, after you've walked the golden streets, what are you going to do? Right. Where, where do you go from there? You know, and I don't mean in any way to diminish her uh, view. I sincerely hope she found those golden streets. But uh, what if you had the secret of life and th- then, you know, is, is your life to be uh, <laughs> circumscribed by that? Or do you find the thing that's really tells you secrets about secrets? You know, mm. so I, mm. I think I've made that point. Yeah. The, the book, which I have found in, in your work in general, to me is, um, it's a great prompt for deepening one's life and asking these larger questions. And I thought that one of the things that might be interesting to, to listeners and to viewers, and I mentioned this when I reached out to you a couple of weeks ago that, you know, our original conversation is one of the most popular interviews I've ever done on the show is break down this conversation by a few of the themes that you talk about in the book that I thought might be interesting to people. Um, and the one which I know you've written about before, but you clarify in some ways in this book is the concept of the shadow, which has a lot of, I think, resonance in uh, our culture and is becoming even more uh, a subject of curiosity among people. And I, I thought I would read two, two quotes from you about the shadow and then allow you to add anything you might like to contribute, which is, here's the the first quote, which is from you from the book, quote, probably the simplest thing that Young ever said about the shadow was simply that it is what we do not wish to be. And the second one is, quote, probably the wisest thing ever said about the shadow was uttered by the Roman African playwright Terence, who a little over 2,000 years ago said, and I love this line, nothing human is alien to me. Again, I am the carrier of the whole human project in each of us, then, is the liar, the lecturer, the thief, the criminal, the murderer, and shockingly, maybe even the saint as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I resemble those remarks, as Archie Bunker used to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the shadow represents those aspects of ourselves or of our affiliations, such as civic organizations, religious groups, national groups, whatever. Those elements, which when we make them conscious, we find are contradictory to our intended values um, and or ask of us certain things that violate something deep within us. So 
you know, the, 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 the shadow, again, is our human capacity, frankly, for making a mess of things. If you put two human beings on a desert island, they'll build some structures, and then they'll make a mess of it. I have a, a close friend, Arya Maidenbaum, and he told me this story about a, uh, a rabbi who was on a sailing ship, and the ship went down when it hit some rocks, and so he was on his island for years. I'm giving the short version here. Mm. And he built a whole city. He had nothing else to do. This time, he built a whole city. And after 20, 25 years, a ship finally comes close enough to see his SOS sign that he's posted there, and the captain comes ashore, and he, he says, you know, I... This is all remarkable. He said, I, I just think this is marvelous. You've created a whole world here. But one thing that puzzles me, he said, there's one of you and you put two synagogues there. And why is that? And he said, well, there had to be one synagogue where I which just wouldn't dare cross their door. Mm. you know. And that's the shadow, you see. The shadow represents those aspects of ourselves. Does a person want to, to be parochial, um, uh, fearful of others? Does a person wish to acknowledge their greediness? Wish that, do they really want to examine how many of their decisions are coming out of the four-year-old or the six-year-old inside of them? I mean, you know, we're swimming in shadow material on a, on a constant basis. Mm. And for people that hear that response and are scared by it because it doesn't come naturally to want to look at those repressed or darker um, aspects right. of their personality, what would be your response as to where the wisdom lies in doing that kind of shadow work? Well, what it, what it means is if I don't take that seriously and examine it myself, my, sh my shadow's still working its way out through my life, and it'll affect my children, my partner, you know, colleagues at work, et cetera, wherever. So it doesn't go away. As Jung said, the greater the light, the longer the shadow. So mm. where I'm in denial, then I am in some way at the mercy of what's still operating in the world through me. And therefore, if I'm going to be a thoughtful, conscious, even ethical being, I have to constantly be looking at my own backyard here and say, what is it I need to address? What do I need to clean up? And, and so forth. In a talk that Jung gave in 1937 at Yale, he said, if you could imagine a person strong enough to deal with the shadow, to, to own it and to, to wrestle with it, he said that person has, on the one hand, a new problem to deal with. He can no longer blame somebody else because he understands it starts at home here. Mm -hmm. But secondly, he's done something you know wonderful for family and for country by removing from the collective experience some small part of their own shadow. In other words... The best thing you can do, and I alluded to this before, is clean up your own backyard. Mm. When you do that, that's that's a civic uh, achievement. That's helping the world that we live in. So uh, underneath all of this is uh, the question, how am I to live my life consciously and ethically in the face of circumstances, perhaps, over which I have no control? And that's that's a that's a daunting question, but it will come up in various ways throughout the course of our life. There's another section to the book, or I guess a theme in the book that I wanted to bring up. And you use a word in the book which I didn't hear a lot when I was a kid, and learned I think in my late twenties, which is the word numinous. 
And in the first conversation that we had, and I was reviewing that last night, we were discussing uh, religion and religiosity. And I made this offhanded comment to you that, you know, when I was young, I was a religious person. I was raised Catholic and then left religion. Mm -hmm. And you retorted by saying, you know, I would argue if you are spending part of your life and you are a person who is concerned with ultimate questions, you are a religious person by a certain definition. And I've always loved the word numinous and you give more clarity to that word in the book. And I thought I would, I would read uh, a couple passages that you give about that word. And then I'd love to give it to you to take away. And Mm -hmm. this is the, the root of the word. You say, quote, the word numinous comes from a Latin verb that means to beckon or be summoned. So we don't create numinosity. It's something that calls us, that speaks to us that catalyzes an autonomous response within us. Relatedly, and I've heard you use this quote before, I think you refer to it as a, a homey statement by Young, where he, he had said, quote, we all walk in shoes too small for us. You later say, quote, as Young often mentioned, most of our troubles come when we have lost contact with our guiding instincts, that energy within us that's in service to, to becoming who we are in the world, And then finally, quote, your vocation is really not about a job per se. It's about what is truly worthy of your commitment, your service. The calling itself is a mystery that comes from someplace deep within the soul. Inspiration, the word inspirer, translates as, quote, the breath within, means to have the breath of the gods moving through us. And one final note I'll just make, which I, I think I said to you when we first <clears throat> met, is in this increasingly secular era, one of the things I have so appreciated about your work and the uh, popularizing or translation of a lot of the the Jungian ideas is it seems to be able to weave through a secular time with a uh, mystical bent and a religious bent. So I, I wanted to give just the concept of numinous to you. And I know you talk a lot about calling and uh, honoring the the summons within and would love to give you any additional uh, time you might like to comment on that idea. Sure. Um, we all know we're we're born with our guiding instincts but we're obliged to be socialized for good reasons. And every time we become socialized, there's the potential for separating us from our deepest source of insight into what our life is about. And uh, um, this necessary compromise is, is what is the price of civilization, essentially. You know, to have a collective experience, you you owe something. You know, we all stop at stop signs. I mean, that's a reasonable expectation. But what happens when someone tells you whom you're supposed to marry or what your goals in life are meant to be, which historically most cultures have done precisely that. They've defined for people who they are and what they're to do with their lives. In other words, they're, they're given roles to play and scripts with those roles. Now, if if that doesn't in some way link you to the numinous, it will be a form of enslavement in one's life. And one may have no choice in life, and most of humanity has not had a choice. It's either a struggle for survival 
or it's been living in um, constricted situations, which in fact, um, you know, define one. Uh, so one suffers a deep, deep wound to the soul that may or may not be visible to the outer world, but it, it's certainly something that, you know, uh, destroys the uh, uh, meaning of life for individuals. And, and we have tons of examples of that going on around the world at all times. On the other hand, the numinous is to a person who has the possibility of responding to it is a clue as to what it is I'm to do with my life. In other words, what activates your spirit? What touches you? What moves you? Now, to choose a kind of simplistic example, let's say we both go to an art museum, and one painting there touches you deeply, and I pass by indifferently. Or another one moves me to a strong response, and, and you're indifferent to it. Which one of us is right? Well, mm. ne neither one of us. That for whatever reason, the numinous uh, came to each of us in its different form and in, in its um, individualized form. And so our response is an honest response to that. Now, that tells you what is meant for you, what is not meant for you. In other words, um, I, I, I find working with people in the context of analysis has a numinosity to it. For example, we puzzle over where do our dreams come from? How can it that there be some center within me that knows me better than I know myself consciously? What am I to do with my dreams, etc.? Now, that's an engagement with the mysterious other. And it's not something you manufacture or you can control. It's something that comes to you or, or it doesn't as it as as that happens. And, and so beneath all of this is the question of to what are we called to give our energies and our allegiance? Mm -hmm. And there, there is a legitimate claim on behalf of the social contract. So we do stop at stop signs, hopefully. On the other hand, you have a duty to your own soul, and that's to be served as well. Many times through the years, people have come to me often after talks and so forth, and I said, what, do you think I should do this or do that? And I, I've said, yes. Both have legitimate claims on you. Figure out a way in which you can honor you know, your obligation, let's say, to your family or paying your bills, and on the other hand, pursuing what feeds your spirit. And when you and by, by spirit here, what we really mean is when you're doing what's right for you, the energy is available. There's a quickening of your whole personhood. Your, your body and your mind and your emotional life are united in that response. And when it's not right for you, you may have to you know attend to that. Like you get up at three in the morning, change a diaper. That's mm -hmm. not going to be particularly luminous. Although it, it may well be, because when you remember, you look at the miracle of this little baby, right? Mm. That's numinous for most people, not all people, but for most people. And 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 so again, the the numinous is something outside of us. It triggers a reaction to us in us, and when it does that, it's to be honored and respected, and that could include emotions such as fear. And and so forth. That that has numinosity too. You know, there are people who will look, look at that same painting and be frightened by it. Well, you know, if they've been touched, their spirit has been triggered. It's not always pleasant feelings, but at least you're alive. It's sort of like the poet Charles Bukowski said once. Uh, 
you may be worried about losing your soul, but at least that worry tells you you have a soul that you can lose. So that's something, you know. So um, there's something to be said for the ways in which we respond. And, and, and what if your world around you, your family, your religious tradition, your cultural circumstances, what if they forbid you from pursuing that? You know, the last novel that Thomas Hardy ever wrote was Jude the Obscure. And it was about a fine young man in England who was constantly bumping up against the class structure. And so he couldn't go to Oxbridge, which was Oxford and Cambridge, you know, combined. He couldn't marry the woman who, whom he loved and who loved him in return because they were from different classes and so forth. And it's a perfect example of how the spirit can be quenched by structures and, and uh, prohibitions uh, in, in the world around them. And at the same time, the way in which we are also summoned to break through some of those limitations if we need to, and to pay the price for that. As Jung pointed out once, he said, to undertake this process of individuation, becoming more nearly who you truly are, as opposed to just a series of adaptations, will take you away from the collective for a while. And he said, you'll feel a, a guilt burden there, a debt that's to be repaid. And you return to it by bringing a more evolved human being to share with your family, with your children, with your society, and, and so forth. So this is not about narcissism. It's not about self-absorption. It's, it's actually about being called and, and responding to that call. And that's what vocation means as opposed to a job, per se. You note in the book, relatedly, that uh, I think this is another idea from Jung, that it, in his mind, the the goal of life was not goodness, but wholeness. And uh, you, know, you have also said in, in prior interviews that I've, I've heard you speak about that you know, the modern addictions in our culture are something like materialism, hedonism, and distraction. And, you know, I think for people that probably come to see you who watch interviews like this, they may have found that in themselves to some degree. And I know you speak about uh, often a, a great question to ask when one is feeling depressed or going through a depressive phase is to ask, why has this come? Which is something we had talked about a couple of years ago. And I guess my question would be for you, do you, is it your view that, you know, the numinous is within all of us, that the effort and the time and probably the silence and reflection that's uh, required to get access to what resonates for an individual is, is there for all to be found, provided you maybe push back against some of those cultural currents? How do you view that from uh, sort of well, a, an I, individual perspective. The Remember, the numinous is outside of us, per yeah. se. Um, and there is within each of us the capacity to be moved by something, for, such as falling in love. Falling mm -hmm. in love is a luminous experience. You know, the, this ordinary human being over here is a peril in celestial light, and you fall in love with them, you see. Um, and, and that's a summons to engage the mystery of the other, and you respond to it. And you can't help but being touched, you see. Or you're listening to some new music. You like some, you don't like others. By what grounds do you make that decision? That's encountering the numinosity of life. And for each of us, it's going to be a different path. I mean, sometimes our paths overlap, of course, but, but we have different uh, paths to take. 
So alone or together, we have our own journeys to make in life. And the more you take your journey, the more you have to share with others. So again, it's not about selfishness or isolation. Quite the contrary, you return to the world. I mean, I spent my adult life in public education, all of my adult life. In fact, I started at age five going to school, and I've never stopped. It's just that I idolized my teachers for the simple reason that they were introducing me to a larger world. Why would I not be grateful? And why would I not want to share that with others later in life? That's why I, I do a program like this, you know, at this late age of life. I'm still doing it. And that's because I, I believe strongly in the need to sort of turn on the light within a person and maybe give them permission. One of the things I found, by the way, is very few people have permission really to be who they are because you learn early in life. Life is conditional. Even love seems to be conditional. And you better meet the conditions. What do you need to do? Keep your mouth shut? Be a nice student? Distract mom and dad from their struggles? What, what is it you need to do? Well, <laughs> th those necessary um, perceptions by a child are things that they that become roles and scripts that they have to enact and pay the price down the line. So uh, the second half of life is about recovering a relationship to the person you left behind. Mm. And there's always a person left behind in those thousand adaptations and, and life's necessary tasks, such as paying the bills and, you know, covering the mortgage and, and, and seeing the children have orthodontic braces and things like that, you see. So again, figure out a way to do that and still honor the calling of your soul. Because if you don't, Something will sicken and sour within you, and they'll have to live with that too. I've heard you say before, I love that, Jim, and I've heard you talk before about the primary obstacles in life being, you know, summarized as fear and lethargy. And I, um, there's a section in the book where that I, I love that I wanted to read out where you, you talk about lethargy. lethargy. I want to get into fear in a second here, but. This is the line from the book, quote, lethargy is related to one of the four rivers of classical hell, Leith. If you drink of the waters of Leith, you forget. What do you forget? You forget your journey. You forget your reason for being here. You forget to show up. And I've heard you say before that I believe you phrase them as the two gremlins that often meet us at the foot of our bed every morning, fear and lethargy. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to to speak in more detail about the role of lethargy in one's life and and why it is to be confronted. Sure. Well, there's a part of each of us that wants to drown in the unconscious because life is difficult and dangerous and then you die. And it's like, well, who wants to deal with that? So, uh, you know, you mentioned distraction earlier. There are a thousand distractions in our culture. You could just turn on the television and stop reflecting on any of this and just, you know, be, be involved in whatever's happening out there. There's a lot of noise out there, a lot of shiny new objects you can go purchase. All of these things in, at some level are flights from engaging the reality of your own soul. And so uh, underneath all of this is the hard work that it requires to say, all right, where did that come from in me? Why did I get so upset about that yesterday? What's that about? Or wonder why I had that dream. To ask some very basic questions about what's really going on and, and pursue it. Don't stop with it, but pursue that, you see. 
And and uh, lethargy is, you know, Lethe is a river of forgetfulness. And so we forget we're here to live this journey in as full a way as we possibly can. But that that touches the issue of fear, because one thing we've all learned as children is the world's big and you're not, and the world's powerful and you're not. So how are you going to cope with that for a few decades, you see? So we're intimidated by the magnitude of life. And th those those two um, deterrents are within each of us. It shows up every morning, you know, where you want to stay in bed and pull the blanket over your head and just not deal with the complexities of the world or the complexities of your marriage or the complexities of, you know, finding uh, work you really love, whatever it is. Um, and and also feeling relatively powerless in the world. And, and you sort of have to ask yourself, over and over, if I'm going to show up in life, not show off, but show up, what is asked of me? And and how do I go about doing that? And that's when you've moved out of this um, gray area into an engagement with your life. Uh, in a book that Jung published in 1912, he said, and this is a paraphrase, he said, the spirit of evil, which is strong language, the spirit of evil is a negation of the life force by fear. Only boldness could deliver us from fear. And if the risk is not taken, the meaning of life is violated. And I've said to people, type that up hmm. um, and put it on the mirror where you have to see it every day when you brush your teeth or you whatever you do there. And if you really internalize it, it'll change your life because you realize how fear pushes you into a small court. I'd love to learn to play the piano, but I have no talent, you see. Well, there's a perfect example of an impulse, a summons by the numinous, and it's shut down right away. Um, after I finish proofreading this latest book, I, I'm actually going to try some painting. Mm. Uh, I did once before when I was in training many decades ago, but it's something I've, I want to come back to. I have zero talent in the area, but trying to express myself through color uh, and and through shapes and forms in relationship to each other has a numinosity to it calls me to that. So I, I want to try to honor that while I can. And I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> commercialize it. And I'm not going to compare it with somebody else's work. That's what happens. People start looking over their shoulder and say, well, can I do this or can I do that? You know, that's that, that's that issue of permission. And, uh, you know, behind it, you, you you have the child's fears, and they're still governing after all these decades. Hmm. So you have to put it back. We've Bye. talked a yeah we've we've talked a little bit about uh, distraction today, and I've heard it been said that modern life is more brave new world than 1984 in many ways. And I wanted to put this to you of what you are seeing in terms of, and I don't know if you would relate this directly to the idea of lethargy, but the distractions that you think are often plaguing people. Uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly how you would frame that if you agree with that sentiment, but um, when you look around the country and you think about the concept of lethargy and how much of an impediment that can be to individuation or individual progress, what, what do you, what do you see? Well, I see what you see. And, and that <laughs> is a culture that is, um, in, in love with, enchanted by violence, shiny new things, um, and is, is you know, given at times to scapegoating people. 
um, and is often in a culture of blaming rather than uh, taking responsibility. So um, all of that is easier than the hard work of living with yourself. Can I stand to address the person who's in this sack of skin that I am and own that person's complexities and deal with that and stop thinking about myself as a good person and everybody else as a bad person, but see that what is common to humanity is within me and within you. And, and we need to be honest about that and own our part of that. Again, it sounds so simple, but it's the hardest work you ever do. And I've often said to people who are in, in long-term analysis, uh, this is not about curing you because you're not a disease. This is about a process of discovery. It'll make your life more interesting to you because you realize, for example, just to use the uh, parable that we were using before, when you rise in the morning, there are the two gremlins. Mm. Taking them on is an heroic task. It really is. You have to take on the seductions of lassitude or lethargy. You have to take on your fears. Uh, and if you do, your life is rich, exciting, and developmental. And if you don't, it's going to be shut down and you will be miserable. And mm -hmm. most people are miserable and don't know why. And it's because they're not living the life that makes sense to them. I know I have heard you say that in your own personal life with your own personal journey that you're a card-carrying introvert and that uh, in many ways I, I feel similarly with this this kind of work that it's always uh, anxiety producing to some degree but beforehand and doing the research and doing the preparation and to you know put that to you and your your life story which I know in our first interview you you spoke about in some detail um, what how do you make sense of your decision to and i it which is amazing because you're such an eloquent speaker and you're a, a prolific writer and speaker how you overcame what is probably a natural temperament for bookishness and quiet solitude and writing to become more of a public figure how do you make sense of how you made that possible for yourself well, that's that's a good question um, because you're right. As as a card carrying introvert, I would rather be off in the corner reading a book than having this interview. No, <laughs> no, I get it. I get it because I always feel anxiety beforehand because there's always uh, something about the public arena that's intimidating. Mm. And secondly, in my family of origin, which was governed, my parents were not allowed to get an education. They were uh, hardworking people. But their whole mentality was, let's stick together and don't go out there. It's just too dangerous. We'll stay here and take care of each other. So the first thing I did when I reached 18 was move away, of course, because mm. you know, I had to get away. Not that I didn't love them or respect them. I did and do to this moment. At the same time, I knew that something in me would die if I stayed there, you know. And so... um at some point, you have to decide, you know, am I going to live my life or or not? And then the second question is, in service to what? You know, what is worthy of your service? Because if you're not finding something worthy of your service, you're going to be serving your complexes from the past. You know, you're you're going to be trying to deal with old battles. And again, you're not a developmental, you're a regressive agenda. So for me... It was A, I was identified with the role of teaching, and um, teaching is, is something that comes naturally to me. 
And and secondly, it's like if I have discovered things that I found helpful through the work of analytic psychology, why would I not share it with somebody else? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I do it one one on one in the analytic hour, certainly. But then it 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 um, became clear to me that both public speaking and uh, and publication is reaching more people. And the interesting thing is today, because of Zoom, thank goodness, or it's equivalent. There are people now showing up for lectures from around the world. I recently taught a course where we had people in 11 different countries. Mm. That never would have happened in the past. And so there we're addressing the issue of geographic or cultural isolation. And, you know, the modern electronic technology makes it possible to overcome. That's marvelous. But my point was the numinosity of vocation, I felt called to be a teacher. And a teacher shares things with people. Um, and that was more important than my cultural conditioning and family of origin and my native tendency to um, keep my mouth shut and be isolated. Yeah. I, I forget if I... Excuse me. No, I, I, I get it. I, I think I may have gotten this idea from you or maybe one of your books, but <clears throat> the idea was essentially if given the choice between anxiety and depression choose anxiety for it is um it helps to progress you in in life it's developmental and you know i know from our first conversation that you know you're no stranger to moments of transition and that my understanding is that after obtaining a tenured professorship uh a position that you have said metaphorically people would kill for you decided Mm -hmm. to go in another direction following a depression in your mid thirties. And I'm wondering if that moment in your life earlier, when you decided to leave your, your family of, of origin, if you ever give thought to what would have become of you, if you would have stuck around your hometown, if you wouldn't have left home at 18, um, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the, the line about nothing human is alien to me. I wonder if you see, you know, patients that, are full of neurosis or full of uh, mm-hmm. some sort of chronic depression and see a version of yourself if you hadn't sure. done difficult and fearful things? Sure. Uh, I mean, the alternative is in some way to kill the spirit. And mm-hmm. you can expect depression to be a, a, a life experience for you uh, as opposed to something that comes here and there in one's life. But your, your whole life would be depressed. Um, and, you know, people turn to alcohol and medication and so forth. I had a client a number of years ago I saw twice only. First time, he was in his 50s. He had been raised in a fundamentalist culture. He had doubts as a um, teenager about his conditioning, and as a result of which he was so frightened of having his thoughts be captured by someone else and he would be excommunicated or punished in some way that that he would actually have nausea and periods of, of fainting. In other words, disassociation. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to stand this pressure, so I'm moving over here. I mean, that wasn't a conscious thought, but it was how his psyche was protecting him at the time. So here he was in his 50s with honest questions about the religious issues that he'd been exposed to. And he had gone to several psychiatrists, was loaded up with medication. And he, he 
And I said, you know, your questions are honest. It's time in your life to take them seriously. And he said, if I do so, I'll lose my marriage and I'll lose my place in the community. Mm. And I believe that would have been the case. So he came a second time and said almost the identical things. And I was trying to give him permission to own what was already true for him. And he made a third appointment, and I remember thinking at the time, I'll never see him again. And sure enough, and who came? He said, well, I visited another psychiatrist, and he's put me on this medication X and Y. And all of this, and I say this with the deepest of sorrow, not, not criticism, hmm. all of this was a, a, a way to avoid the hardship of being who he is. You know, there's an old saying, that the 11th commandment is to become yourself. You mm. see, and that's the hardest one of all. And again, this is not narcissism. It's about serving something that wants expression in the world through you. See, that's the person you share with your family or your clients or whomever. And it's it's not about you. It's it's about you as vehicle. Because the first half of life, and I'm being overgeneralized here, is what do they want from me? Parents, school teachers, colleagues, partners, et cetera, et cetera. What do they want from me? And how do I mobilize the energy to, to meet them halfway here? And then in the second half of life, the question is, but so having done that, let's say, more or less successfully, why am I here? What am I what am I here to do? What am I what's my life about? Is it simply to you acquire more money? Is it to build a resume? Is it to, you know, have 3.2 children? What, what, what is it that I'm here for? And then the question, the quality of one's life comes out of what one does with those kinds of questions. Those are large questions, you see, mm. and they'll get you a larger life, a more troubled one, but a more interesting one. And that's, that's worth uh, exploring. So, you know, if you'd ask me as a child, would you imagine that your profession is to sit in a room and listen to someone's problems. I, I couldn't have imagined it. Of course, I, as a child, I thought I was going to be a major league baseball player, but I, I wasn't given that body. Mm. So I, 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 I found later in life, though, that the numinous was found in those places, at least for me, and that that was something overriding the the narcissistic desires that was something overriding the infantile fantasies that 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 was meaningful and purposeful there was a time in my training when i was working in a psychiatric hospital and i was literally shuttling back and forth between an academic campus and a psychiatric hospital at the same same day sometimes and i remember thinking at the time the conversation that's going on in the hospital is far more real life is up for grabs mm as opposed to what I'm experiencing on the campus. And that's part of why my gravity began to, to shift. I never left teaching, but I left the university. There's a difference. And I have respect for the university. That's not my point. Um, my point simply is the kind of conversation I wanted probably couldn't be found there. Uh, and the kind of issues that I would feel are important to look at, you, you, you really need to find in a different venue. And that meant le leaving a, a position of security and of lifelong guarantee and, and, and so forth, and an office with glass walls on two sides, looking at a lake and forest, so it couldn't have gotten any better, you see. But uh, and as I left, my, I had a friend who was also my bookkeeper, and he said, uh, well, you need to buy disability policy, and 
I said, huh? <laughs> he said, and also your medical insurance, you know? And he said, well, the day you don't work is the day you start losing your home. And I said, oh, okay. And so I went to work, but I wasn't going back. And um, that was the right decision. And yeah. what right for me might not be for someone else. That's that's what a person has to sort through. And sometimes it's very difficult to adjudicate uh, competing legitimate interests that you have, you know, and a commitment to a relationship, for example, plus your need to 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 pursue a course of, of inquiry that's important for you. And you just have to try to honor both the best way you can. That's all you can do. The alternative is going to be depression. That's the point. And, and, and that's depression, something pressed down. You see, what's pressed down? The life of the spirit. The patient you spoke about just a minute ago, um, it reminds me of one of my favorite American nonprofit organizations called the Clergy Project, which is a, a anonymous venue for people in the clergy who no longer believe but don't have the resources or the courage necessarily to go public with the fact that they have, um, they no longer identify with or, or really support what they're saying every Sunday from the pulpit. And I remember you saying in our first conversation that that was the story of Young's father, if I remember correctly, that he had a lifelong depression and that, um, it was something he grew to not particularly respect about his father is the questions that he was incapable of of um, of asking, and this dovetails rather nicely into a, a passage in the book about that you write about psychopathology, where you break this down. Mm-hmm. And I want to read this out to you and get your thoughts on it. And this is from you: "Quote: We live in a world that wishes to rid us as quickly as possible of suffering through a behavioral change or a pill, but stop and think for a moment about the word psychopathology." Psyche is the Greek word for soul. Pathos refers to suffering. Logos means word or expression. So psychopathology is literally the expression of the suffering of the soul. Wouldn't it make sense to stop and pay attention? And remember also the etymology of the word therapy. Therapeuin means to listen or attend to psyche, the soul, to pay attention to rather than suppress psychopathology and to ask why is the soul trying to what is the soul trying to say to me then later you say psychopathology then is the autonomous protest of our inner life to the conditions of our outer life whether from our choices or whether imposed upon us by circumstances or others okay well, I'm not going to argue with those words. <laughs> I think that pretty well sums it up. But uh, again, the whole frame gets altered when you think about the expression of the suffering of the soul. Then doesn't the question immediately emerge, well, I'd better take that seriously. And what is is it that is causing such harm with the soul? What is producing this injury to the soul? How do I uh, remediate that? How, how do I how do I address that? And to think that uh, you know, there's a place for medication in life. We know that. I'm I'm grateful for medication, but I would guess ninety percent of the people who are struggling with depression, for example, or anxiety disorders, 
are, are, are really living someone else's responses to the questions of life. And they need to decide, you know, this is my life. It's the only one I get as far as we know. And if you came back in a different form, it would be a different life. So this is the one where you better grab what is important for you or, or respond to what is trying to to call you. And, and, you know, then you have to face your fears. Ultimately, facing the fears and moving through, because again, something inside of us knows what's right for us. It's smarter than we are. Mm. What that is, I don't know. We can call it instinct. We can call it the soul. We can call it whatever language you want. Uh, you can call it the divine voice within you, whatever it is. It's, it's that which is ultimately true for you. And the question is, can you honor that and serve it in a way that, that doesn't bring harm to other people? Uh, that doesn't mean it'll make you popular. It doesn't mean that people will understand necessarily what you're doing or why. But the point is, you will understand what you're doing. You will know that it's important for you that this is, this is, you do this or you die, psycho-spiritually. Your body might continue for a few decades, but the light's gone out inside. And the key is what, what lights that, that flame within you. And that's something that's, you know, already <laughs> given within you. That's not something you acquire. It's how you respond to the things that um, touch you and, and that, that you wish to honor. You said something in the in the book, uh, or you um, alluded to something in the book, and I've heard you speak about this in interviews that you've given about the book itself, which I, I had never heard until a couple of years ago about the word sin. And sin is not a word that is, and I've heard you say this too, is not something that you often hear in popular culture anymore, but that the root, as I understand it, of, I understand of the word sin is about, is related to marksmanship. Mm-hmm. And one's inability to to hit the mark, and th- this is a subject I think you are so well positioned to um, contribute to our society as it becomes increasingly secular in many ways for good reason. Um, how you think about the dynamic between historical religion and modern science or traditional religious concepts and modernity and progression. And I don't know how the concept of sin might weave into that directly, but I knew I wanted to give you a little bit of time to, to speak about that because I think just in my own life, as friends have left, as I have left uh, traditional institutions, there is, a, there is a void and there is a sense of confusion often about um, you know, direction or where one roots one's ethical orientations or life in general. So I, I just wanted to give that to you and, and get any thoughts you may have that on and related mm-hmm. to our society. You know, someone said, I, I think I saw this on the internet. He said, I no longer believe in God, but I sure do miss him. You know, which is an interesting paradox. That's, that's a pretty witty and actually wise uh, aphorism for that individual that, that shows that longing for spiritual connection. Which I think is to be honored, and the question is, well, yeah, where does your spirit connect? Honor that if you are among those who can find it still within the traditional institutions, why wonderful, it still works for you, it links you to that which is larger than you, 
you know, we all need a story that's bigger than just our story. Um, but at the same time, uh, if that institution no longer sustains the numinous for you, if it doesn't quicken the spirit, then, then you have to have the courage to move on. That's the 50-some-year-old man I was just talking about. He, you know, he had left back in adolescence, but his body's been a prisoner of that place, and therefore his soul is constricted. So he's, he, he's escaping the accountability by medicalizing his situation and say, oh, well, I just need to get a better pill for whatever, you know, my problem is. And when it comes down to a, a failure of nerve to address what, what again, uh, life is calling him to. So, you know, sooner or later, you know, you, you, you are a, a religious being in the sense, not necessarily of an institutional form, but because you care about matters spiritual. And, and maybe the way you care is how you relate to your neighbor or how you relate to your children or, you know, if you appreciate art or if you appreciate music or sports or whatever it is that quickens that spirit. That's that's the thing that allows you to know what the right path for you is ultimately. And that will evolve and change through the course of your life as you grow and develop. So one of the things I've never lost is the desire for learning. I, I can't help but wanting to to learn something new about something. Mm -hmm. And I must say, as annoying as the internet can be, it's also a marvelous tool for accessing. It used to be you had to have all kinds of books around you to sort of look up something, you know. Now it's usually seconds away, which is marvelous. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. But, uh, you know, I've actually had people criticize me for the words I use in books. I, I once was being driven from an airport to this city to give a, a speech out on the West Coast. And the guy sort of handed me this list. He was kind of irritable. And he said, I, I want you to look at this and tell me about this. And I looked there, and they were just a list of 40-some words. And I said, what is this? And he said, those are words in your last book that I didn't understand. Like, mm. I'm supposed to just use words you understand? Why don't you thank me? Because every one of those words potentially opens another world to you. Be grateful. When I see a word I don't know... That's a world I don't know. Now's an opportunity to open to that. You see, that's where the numinous is found, and, and it's something seemingly as trivial as that. You say, oh, I wonder what that means. I, I should look that up, or I wonder what the background of this is. And that there, there you're you're tracking what what has stirred and pricked the, the the spirit. You see, it doesn't have to be grandiose. You know, you don't have to lie on your back and paint the ceiling of the Vatican or something like that, you know, it, 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 it can show up in the smallest possible way. Hmm. You know, a momentary contact with another human being, you see, sometimes is full of numinosity. I have a friend who is actually my, the friend who introduced me to your work initially. And I was thinking about this as you were talking about the patient who didn't come back for the third appointment. And he told me that if he could, he has no tattoos, but if he had to pick what to tattoo on his body, he would tattoo three words and it comes from your writing and it's, um, insight, courage, and endurance. Sure. And that I think you've written is not a bad litany of which to, uh, have as a bit of a North star to guide one's life in the sense of 
having the insight to know what feels right to you and then the courage and the endurance to see it through. And I I know we are getting close to the end of our conversation, Jim, and I want to just make a comment about how much I appreciate, um, you know, how much time you have given to the public. And I know it's not necessarily natural for you to do these kind of interviews and be more of a public figure, but you obviously have an audience of uh, people who are very interested in your work and grateful grateful to to you for your work. And I wanted to convey that before we close down. And there's a quote that I wanted to end with, which you actually beat me to the punch and said it earlier in the conversation, but I thought it was worth reiterating um, because of, I think, just how orienting it can be for living you know an authentic or an examined life and this is this is it it's quote the spirit of evil is negation of the life force by fear only boldness can deliver us from fear and if the risk is not taken the meaning of life is violated you spoke to that earlier about the concept that that individual concept and there's one addendum i might add to that from the book as well which is that quote when we serve fear or anxiety only, we inevitably will also suffer a neurosis, the psyche's response to its diminishment or neglect. And I thought maybe we would close on uh, focusing on fear. We talked about lethargy earlier, but maybe if we can spend a few minutes talking about fear and uh, how you think about the role of fear and its uh, conquering in a life well-lived. Well, you know, a person who had no fear would be a person who just walk in front of cars or would mm. walk to a, a, a you know a dangerous animal. Fear is protective, um, as we know. Fear is specific. Anxiety is very vague. Uh, I think of anxiety often as like a fog that covers a highway. You, you can mm. put your hand in it, and there's nothing there when you open your hand. It's very generalized and amorphous, but it's enough to stop your forward progress. You can't drive through that fog. But buried in the anxiety is is a series of fears. The fear that someone won't like me. These are often very primitive fears if you smoke them out, so to speak. Someone won't like me and I'll be in trouble. Now, for a child, if someone doesn't like you, you, you're in peril because you depend on the goodwill of your parents and playmates and so forth. Or I'll be out there by myself, and the fear of abandonment is extraordinary in people's lives, and understandably. Or, or I'll get punished in some way, you see, or they'll they'll laugh at me, or they'll judge me, or whatever. Those are understandable fears, but sooner or later, one has to find the courage to face them. When you mention the three things before, insight, psychology can only help with the first part. Then come the moral qualities of the individual, courage to face the tasks that life brings you. Whether you want those tasks or not, life is going to bring them to you. And and then endurance, sticking it out over time. And, and when you live it through, then you find that your life is richer, more interesting, and frankly, more authentic than all of those adaptations and all of those fearful evasions. But sooner or later, one has to face one's fears. It doesn't mean you get caught in a literal. So if you're afraid of heights, you don't have to go out and climb a telephone pole or do skydiving. I'm just saying, recognize, what, what does that mean? Maybe what I'm really afraid of is, is stepping up to the next level of my own capacity and fearing there'll be nothing underneath me, you see. 
In other words, what it would mean symbolically. And, and then say, but that I can address because that shows up on a kind of daily basis in my life. Mm. One additional comment I'll make to that, because I know I've heard you speak about this, which I think echoes a lot of uh, probably the experience of many people, which is that you have referred to yourself as a recovering nice person. Mm -hmm. um, and I would imagine that's related to this concept as, as well of stepping into you know, yeah. new roles for yourself. Sure, sure. Well, some of us, many of us, were raised to be nice all the time. And nice meant means accommodating whatever's demanded in your environment, right? Well, if you're nice in all directions, and it's a reflexive niceness, uh, sooner or later, it'll violate your, your own personhood. And sooner or later, it'll violate the uh, expectations of your own soul. And, um, you know, just the capacity to say no to someone. No, I don't want to do that. Or no, I'm not going to allow you to do that to me. Um, those those are moments where one is not being nice, but one is being very real. One is being mm -hmm. authentic. Because the opposite of a reflexive niceness is not is not evil. It's it's called authenticity. Because mm -hmm. reflexive niceness is a protection, an old protection. You know, it's what we call codependence. Where the other, it's a power differential. The power is always in the hands of the other, never within me. And therefore, I don't have the right to say, no, I don't want to do that. I have to cooperate with you, et cetera. So um, that's why, you know, Jung said once, neurosis is the flight from authentic suffering. Mm. So suffering either way, if you have inauthentic suffering, you'll be hit with the depression that comes from the unlived life. If you step into your life more fully, <laughs> you'll have a lot of anxiety. But as you said before, that's preferable to depression because depression ultimately steals from us our capacity to engage life and to grow and develop. And we can stay stuck in self-pity. We can stay stuck in blaming. We can stay stuck in our avoidance patterns. But sooner or later, you know, something inside of us knows and uh, shows up and, and pathologizes I think that's a great place to stop. Jim, thank you so much for coming back on and giving me the time. Uh, it's really great to see you. And thanks again for your work and doing all this public work for everyone. Thank you, Dan. It's a privilege to be with you. I wish you well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 